I'm going to pray. So let's talk to God together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you that we can meet together this morning and we thank you that you're our God and that you've called us to be your people. And we want to confess that as we heard that Bible reading this morning, we felt a bit of a squirming in our seats and an unsettling in our hearts. And so we pray now that as we come to consider what it is that the Lord Jesus said in this the Sermon on the Mount, that we might hear it with new ears, that we might hear afresh what it is that you're doing, what it is that you're calling us to, and that we might again see your mercy and grace to us. And so we pray that you'd help me to speak in a way that's faithful and clear, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Frank William Abagnale Jr. is considered the world's greatest imposter. From 1961 to 1968, he successfully impersonated a commercial airline pilot and flew over 2 million miles for free while working for Pan Am Airlines. During that same time, Abagnale was also the chief resident paediatrician at a Georgia hospital, the assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana, and a professor of American history at the prestigious university in France. By the time Abagnale was caught in France, extradited and sentenced to prison in the United States, he'd cashed over $6 million in fraudulent checks in over 26 countries, including Australia, and in all 50 of the United States. And he did it all before his 18th birthday. Makes you wonder what you've achieved in your life, doesn't it? <laughs> to this day, Frank Abagnale Jr. is still the only teenager ever to be placed on the FBI's most wanted list. That's how the movie Catch Me If You Can starts, an amazingly sad story of Frank William Abagnale Jr. starring Leonardo DiCaprio, who as an actor ironically plays the role of the imposter, and Tom Hanks, who plays the role of the FBI agent, who himself, ironically, is pretending to be an actor. But the problem... Oh, All right, we can talk afterwards. But the problem with imposters is they have no personality of their own. Imposters are chameleons. They are frauds, they are fakes, they are phonies, they are pretenders, they are actors and wannabes. As the world around them changes, so they change shape and colour and an accent just to adjust. They have no opinions of their own. They have no convictions of their own. They simply conform. The imposter wants to be safe. They want to fit in. Imposters want to be accepted and liked, and they do it all for attention. But the imposters are famous for being a nobody. Imposters are non-persons. They go along just to get along. They play a character but have no character. They live a lie that is just waiting to be exposed. Friends, we're in our sermon series in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said all of this stuff in just one sermon, but we're doing it as a series of sermons this term. It's a series called We Are Salt Church. And it's about what it means to be a church, what it means to be the church, what it means to be a disciple. Having already ministered to their physical needs, a sign the kingdom of God has now arrived, Jesus teaches the gathering crowd what it means to belong to his kingdom. He's calling the crowd up into discipleship, inviting them to apprentice themselves under him. This is what it means to live for Jesus. Here's how we live as Christ followers. 
having unsettled all of their assumptions, having disrupted their misconceptions with the Beatitudes, Jesus says to his people, they need to learn to live by heart. Disciples of Jesus live for kingdom impact. Our hearts need alignment with his kingdom. So the soul of the earth, the light of the world are created to have an impact. So our lives are to reflect God's work in us so that, we might, so that others might give glory to God. Following Jesus changes the way we live. Kingdom living requires making some paradigm shifts. And so far, we've seen that we need to move from being attenders to being apprentices. Last week, if you were with us, we saw that we need to move from living in secrecy to living transparently. If we're going to live for God's kingdom, if we're going to be blessed by the kingdom's king, another required paradigm shift for us is to move from half-hearted obedience to wholehearted devotion. On a mountain with the crowd below him, Jesus is just like a new Moses. He's teaching about the kingdom life, what it means to live God's way, what it means to live for him, what it means to learn from him. But it's not just a new law that this new Moses is teaching. He hasn't come to abolish the law. Far from it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not to render the Old Testament law obsolete, but to surpass it. Jesus isn't ending the Old Testament law. He's not anti-law, antinomian, no law, or even an outlaw. Even though Israel couldn't keep God's law, although they failed to obey his commandments, it's not like Jesus is now toning it all down and making it more manageable for everybody. Look again, Matthew 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He teaches the law and only he does what it says. I mean, you can't say that Jesus is relaxing the law, can you? Not when you hear him applying it to us. So the expectations of the law still stand. In fact, these expectations now seem even higher. When it comes to being obedient, when it comes to righteousness before God, we're not simply looking to match it with the Pharisees. Jesus says his disciples need to surpass them. Now, maybe it's because the Pharisees seem intent on doing it to Jesus, but Jesus starts here with murder. Look there, will you? Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The you have heard it said refers to the law of Moses. And it's being repeated by Jesus in his teaching here about the law. Having rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt before they entered into the promised land, on another mountain in the wilderness, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Now that God has rescued Israel, the commandments are about how to live. How to live as the covenant people of God. Here are the rules for us all getting along together. 
Interestingly, do not murder wasn't the first commandment that God gave to Moses, but that's where Jesus starts his teaching, his interpretation of what it means to fulfill the law. So see it with me, won't you? Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Suddenly, we get an, in, an idea, an impression of what fulfilment looks like. This is what it means to surpass the Pharisees in righteousness. Jesus says, just being angry brings about the judgment of God. That was the purpose of the law. But the Pharisees had reduced this commandment to not sticking a knife into someone else. But Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows that we know there's plenty of other ways that we can stick a knife into somebody else. Insults, name-calling, dehumanising people, simply being dismissive of one another. Jesus says all of these things come under the judgment of God because all of these things take life from people. It takes away their dignity as a divine image bearer. That kind of behaviour is destructive. It's deadly. But God's people need to be able to have a different kind of impact. A kingdom impact that causes others to glorify God. God's people need to live as salt. Salt is pure. A light that shines for others. We want to be people who take others' breath away, but not by taking their breath from them. To be found guilty of murder is to be under the judgment of God. According to Jesus, is to be angry. Just start firing off at the mouth at somebody else. You don't need to dispose of a corpse or get caught holding a murder weapon. An angry mouth is a murder weapon. When we insult, ridicule and mock one another, attributing false motives, thinking the worst of people, Jesus calls that murder. But kingdom living means reconciliation. Look there, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Friends, kingdom living means burying the hatchet with someone not burying the hatchet into someone. But it's not just the commandment about murder that Jesus has his eyes on, is it? Have another look there with me at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Once again, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament law. There, in the Ten Commandments, God condemns adultery. But the word adultery isn't a word that you hear very much anymore and our cultural definition of adultery tends to be a little bit slippery. So here's the bottom line on this one according to Jesus. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Don't become sexually involved with anyone who is not your husband or your wife. I remember being a student minister in Sydney and having to have a difficult pastoral conversation. My supervising minister at the time wanted me to talk with a man at our church who was involved in having an affair. 
During the conversation, I said to the man, you know, God says don't commit adultery. His reply completely floored me. I will never forget what he said to me in response. He said, I'm not committing adultery because we're both married. I replied and said, I know, but you're not married to each other. It's amazing how our hearts can bend the rules to justify almost anything that we want to do, isn't it? But you don't have to be getting it on in order to be getting it all wrong. Jesus says it's not just the deed that's unlawful, it's not the act itself that's out of step, it's the intention of our hearts. Look there, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look again closely there at those words. Some of us have been looking closely at the wrong things, haven't we? And that means we're guilty and that means we stand condemned. Because the issue isn't simply between the sheets, friends. The issue lies deep within our own hearts. And when people on the Gold Coast wear less clothing than Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, and when every TV program is about fornication, temptation island, love island, forex island, when every commercial is an attempt to arouse desire so that even food and washing detergent is sexualised, when the internet provides easy access to porn and all you need to do is to delete your search history, is it any wonder that we are set up for failure? Is it any wonder that we fail? Jesus offers some sin management techniques. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole, have your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Not only impractical, but fundamentally unhelpful suggestions, aren't they? The idea that you might maim yourself is lame. Besides, it's never going to work. It won't solve anything. Taking out a hand and plucking out an eye will only identify you to everybody else as an adulterer. But if we really applied this to every sin that you and I committed, then we'd be reduced to nothing more than immovable blobs, wouldn't we? And I think that's the point that Jesus is making. Sin behaviour management is what the Pharisees were doing. Better to lose a limb than to burn in hell. Short-term pain, long-term gain, I guess. But it's not going to get to the heart of the problem, especially when the problem is in our hearts. You see, the Pharisees not only secretly watched every episode of Married at First Sight, but they also practised it too. Look there, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These guys, the Pharisees, were handing out divorce certificates like merit awards at a primary school awards night. 
In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus reminds them that God's intention for marriage in the beginning was that God created them male and female. The two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So you can't get out of your marriage that easily. can't just give in because you've got better options. And so they asked Jesus why Moses commanded a man give a certificate of divorce and send her away. Listen to Jesus' reply, won't you? Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, the words here on the screen behind me. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The issue here is hardness of heart. Can you see that? And that's the problem with the law, isn't it? That's why Jesus is now teach that's what Jesus is now teaching. We are condemned because of the hardness of our hearts. Sexual immorality, marital unfaithfulness are the only biblical grounds for divorce, says Jesus. Now I know that for some of you that's a little bit too close to home. And that makes things very uncomfortable as you sit here this morning. Marriage wasn't happily ever after for you, happily ever after for you. I've got to be honest with you, I'm not sure whose is. But I want to remind you that you are no more under the judgment of God for divorce than the angry or the lustful person. Which includes now all of us, because the issue is our hearts. The Pharisees were keeping the letter of the law. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. But they were angry and petty and they had more weddings than the Kardashians. Because of the hardness of their heart, they couldn't keep the spirit of the law. Their hearts weren't aligned with the kingdom of God. Sin management techniques just simply didn't work for them either. The problem was cardiological. Every question that they asked Jesus only exposed it even further. Look there with me, Matthew 15, verse 6. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, Isaiah, did, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, These people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they do, not worship, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Frauds, fakes, phonies, pretenders, actors, wannabes. Jesus says they are imposters. People look at the outward appearance, but it's God who looks on the heart. We look on the outside, aesthetics and externals, but God looks on the inside, the interior, the internal. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in this section about the law and its fulfilment, Jesus is simply exposing the problem that's beneath the surface for every single one of us. And that's the condition of our sinful hearts. Our hearts condemn us before a holy God. All of us under the judgment of God. What we need are new hearts. Hearts realigned with the kingdom of God, not biased towards our own sinful desires, not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. 
And that was the promise of the new covenant, wasn't it? That's what Jesus is now here. He comes to usher in this new covenant, a new covenant inaugurated by his blood on the cross. Here again, the promises of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That new covenant is now here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, says Jesus. The Spirit of God gives us new hearts. Jesus is the new Moses who fulfills the law and God now writes that law within us. But the Pharisees' righteousness was letter of the law, wasn't it? Outward appearance, externals, lip service. And you know, it's easy for you and I to keep up appearances, isn't it? Easy to be seen to be doing all the right things. But outward appearance was never God's intention. God's not interested in, in imposters. God wants lovers, people who live for his kingdom impact. Jesus says if we want to be in God's kingdom, then we need to surpass pharisaical righteousness. Friends, that's a movement of God within us. That's the work that God does in us now by his spirit. Blessing in the kingdom of God comes only when we realise that we have no righteousness of our own. Before a perfect heavenly father, we need to realise that we don't have a leg to stand on, that some of our limbs are missing and we can't see any more out of one eye. But listen to this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's only when we realise that we have nothing, when we surrender ourselves to God and his mercy, that God begins the new kingdom work in our hearts. So that our hearts don't make false promises anymore, verse 33. Mouths that don't speak with flattery and deception, but hearts that speak the truth. Where yes means yes and no means no, where we do what we say and we say what we mean. We need hearts that don't take revenge. Verse 38, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, tit for tat. But where we overlook the wrong that's been done to us, turning the other cheek and going that extra mile. We need hearts that love our neighbours, verse 43, even when our neighbours are our enemies. Not just loving those who love us, but loving those who are exceptionally difficult people to love. A love that is greater than the Gentiles, a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees. Don't you see, this is what Jesus is calling us to. Here is how we live lives of impact for his kingdom, learning to live by our new hearts, 
That's what it means to be salt and life, light. And it requires another paradigm shift in us. One where we move from half-hearted obedience to one of wholehearted devotion. And like we've done with every talk so far in this series, here's the question. The one thing that I need to do now is... Why don't you take a moment, think about that. What is the one thing that you need to do, having heard this sermon this morning? Take a minute. Now, Father in heaven, will you have mercy on us for the times when we've hardened our hearts, when instead of turning the other cheek, we've turned the other way and not loved you as, we've ought, as we ought? Will you forgive us for half-hearted obedience, an obedience that looks like we're doing all the right things even though internally we are in full-blown rebellion? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come and brought in a new covenant one where our sins are forgiven, one where you give us new hearts, our Father, where you write your word upon it. Would you help us to learn from that new place, to learn how to live, to learn how to love, to learn how to serve, that you might help us to live in the kingdom and for the kingdom so that our lives might be one of impact on the people around about us. Would you forgive us for the times when we've tried to look like we've got it all together? Would you help us not to pretend and not to be fake anymore? Would you help us to find delight in the promise that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? And we give you thanks that you've come for the sick and not the healthy and the self-righteous. And so we confess our need before you this morning, Lord Jesus. And we ask that we might learn to live for you as your disciples, apprenticing ourselves under Jesus, learning to live by our new hearts, his way. And we ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.